Uh, we're live. So welcome to our Sunday class. And uh, thank you for coming. Today, we start with a very interesting verse, as you will soon see. So it's January 2nd, time dating this for the future. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. So we're on verse 1, 15, 10. First Canto, chapter 15, text 10. Here's the Sanskrit. Patnyas Tavadi Maka Klipta Maha Bisheka Slagista Charu Kavaram Kitavaik Savayang Sprishtam Vikirya Padayo Patitashumukya Yastatstriyo Krita Yas this is heavy, heavy line. Yastatstriyo Krita Hatesha Vimukta Keshaha. So Patnyas Tava of your wife, of your wife, Patni. So Patnyas Tava Adi Maka Klipta Mahabhisheka. Slagista Charu Kabaram. So that whole compound, starting with Abhimaka and ending with Kabaram, refers to Kabaram, Draupadi's hair, actually. Kabaram means uh, Draupadi's hair. This is the verse about the uh, insult to Draupadi. So let's look at this very closely because, as I've said many times, we find a somewhat different version in the Bhagavatam than we do in the uh, than we do in the um, Mahabharata. I, I'm I, so um, actually we find a different version in the Mahabharata, especially in the Bhagavatam, than we do in the um, in the Mahabharata. And there are different stories like that where they're very different in the Bhagavatam than they are in the Mahabharata. And of course we take the Bhagavatam version. Uh, so here it's talking about Kavara. Kavara, also with a V, there are two spellings. Kavara means the hair, her hair. So it's about Draupadi's hair. Chardu Kavara, her beautiful hair. And the words, I'm gonna translate all the words here so you can see exactly what's going on in Sanskrit because it is it's a very it's a controversial point we can imagine uh shlagista means highly praised so shlagista charu kabaram charu is beautiful so her most are very so apparently Draupadi had very beautiful hair and she was famous for that that's the idea here that Draupadi was famous for her beautiful hair and so that beautiful hair, uh, Mahabhisheka, which had been sanctified in great uh, ceremonies, uh, <clears throat> Klipta, she had arranged her hair. Prophet said dress, dressed her hair. She had arranged that famous, beautiful hair for uh, the Abhim Adimaka, the, which means not only the sacrifice, the great sacrificial ceremony, uh, but uh, the Rajasuya, which of course made Yudhisthira the emperor of the world. So Adi Maka is a great sacrifice. Maka by itself means sacrifice. Adi Maka, so that hair, sprishtam, her hair was touched. That's the point. I mean, it's it's a very complex the uh word order the syntax here it's a very ornate complex sanskrit verse so i'm trying to put it in simple syntax simple word order so that kavanam that hair of Draupadi, sprishtam was touched kitavai by the basically by the evil people by the uh the word kitava that means by the kitavas 
and the word kitava in Sanskrit means um, gambler or a cheater. So by these cheaters, by these gamblers, it means also can be a, um, by these cheating gamblers, these bad people, her beautiful, highly praised hair was touched. And so why is that so important that her hair was touched? Well, as I've explained so many times, uh, the different parts of the body in this culture had very important cultural meaning. I mean, the simplest example is that we always talk about serving the lotus feet. For example, Bande Guru Sri Charanaravinda, to serve the Guru's lotus feet doesn't mean that a good disciple has to become a pedicurist. Although <laughs> it wouldn't be a bad idea. So, but, but the idea, so it's actually symbolic because the feet are the lowest part of the body. They're in contact with the ground, which is unclean. And so serving the feet is means humble service, but it's taken that way. So it's not only, uh, let's say poetically or linguistically symbolic, it's also has a very heavy real life symbolism apart from poetry or apart from literature. So for example, if someone touches a respectable person with their foot, as we know in India, and also actually throughout in many other parts of the world, that is the greatest offense. Uh, you know, like like in Muslim countries, they you know they really want to insult someone, they throw their shoe at him. That's like you know that's the biggest offense to throw your shoe at somebody. In fact, I just saw something. I did, there was a news item actually just yesterday, where a, an important minister, I forget exactly which minister, but one of the chief ministers, I think of the United. I forget whether it was Saudi Arabia or the uh, UAE, but from one of these very important uh, Middle Eastern countries, a minister went to visit the foreign, was meeting in Pakistan with the foreign minister of Pakistan. And so the foreign minister was sitting with what I think his, his right leg was sort of crossed over, you know, you sit where you sit down and you put one foot resting on the other foot. Just cross, and uh, and so his shoe is pointing toward this Arab minister. His shoe was pointing toward him, and that was a huge scandal. That was like an international scandal that his shoe was pointing toward this minister. And, and you know, obviously in the West, no one would notice that, but still, I mean, international scandal because his shoe was just pointing toward uh this minister so just as the feet are very powerful are very powerful are a very powerful symbol so is the head i mean to give it i mean the example i always give some of you have heard this many times but i want to put it in context for this verse in case you know people are listening to it to find out how deviant i really am it's um <clears throat> as as far as the head when when ashwatthama killed the five sleeping sons of Draupadi. They were sleeping, which obviously violates everything, you know, every Kshatriya code. He murdered them. So nowadays we talk about offense and abuse. He murdered these five young men in their sleep. And the punishment was cutting his hair. I mean, that is, you know, that is absolutely inconceivable to us, like, you know, he should have been killed. He should have been killed slowly. He should have been court tortured and then killed. You know, people can imagine what they think, the, you know, what would really be justice in this case. I mean, there aren't laws like that in America, but people have their own ideas of what justice is. And the Bhagavatam says that in the case of Brahman, the killing is not daihikam. It is not bodily from deha. It's not bodily killing. And so how is that possible? that the punishment for killing five young men in their sleep is cutting the person's hair. Because also he had a crown jewel on his hair. So clearly in that culture, that was so humiliating. That was so, basically he was, you know, socially destroyed. He was killed in terms of his status in the world. And so you think about Ashwatthama if you want to understand what's happening here. 
So if that was the right punishment for killing five young men in their sleep, imagine, and there are even stricter laws about what you can do to a woman. The actual role of women, as I'm trying to point out in various essays, is not exactly the same as uh, sometimes in, in, in more recent uh, Hindu culture. So they were you know, strictly to be protected. And you'll see now how Krishna responds. This verse explains how Krishna responded to this insult to Draupadi. So they, they actually you know, grabbed her hair and pulled her into this gambling hall a gambling hall, a men's gambling hall. I mean, a men's gambling hall is just as raunchy, is just as vulgar back then as, as it is now. You know, if you see these movies where typical, you know, the, these action movies where it's some kind of some men's gambling thing, everyone's smoking, drinking, they're all usually like, you know, Russian mafia or something. And then the hero comes in, you know, some lady or some man, and amazingly is able to kill, you know, 79 tough guys with machine guns or some, but that's Hollywood. Never mind reality. So um, so it's a men's gambling hall, which no respectable woman would ever step foot in in that age. And then uh, to, to pull her by the hair, that was well, the easiest way to show you how bad that was is how Krishna responded. So I'll read the rest of the verse. Sprishtam vikirya. So they touched her hair, they they vikiri, they spread out her hair. In other words, because it's described above that her hair was kabara, which means that the hair is all sort of, you know, it's like you think, like sometimes women go to these, like, you know, the equivalent maybe in the West is high society balls, their hair is all, you know, arranged and everything. And there's, I forget what you call it, um, I remember the word in Spanish braided or not all braided but you know just like very fancy very, very fancy hair and so they just untied all that they loosened her hair which was already an unimaginable offense and pulled her into this gambling hall vikiria means like spread out her hair and then padayo patita and then here's the point it says she fell she she fell at the feet now Prabhupada translates this as she fell at the feet in the word for word, uh, she fell down with tears in her eyes. Uh, Prabhupada in his translation says she fell at the feet of Krishna with tears in her eyes. So did she fall at the feet of Krishna? Uh, uh, I mean, it, it doesn't say Krishna, but we can imagine that she fell, you know, she took shelter of Krishna. Krishna was not there. As Krishna explains later in the Mahabharata, he, in his Leela, he couldn't be there because that was this is going on exactly at the time when uh, Shalva is attacking Dwarka with his airship. So, uh, therefore, Krishna has to defend Dwarka from this serious attack, and he cannot be there. So, that also points out something else important. But when, so when it says she fell at his feet... Uh, it's not very common in the Bhagavatam. I don't know if there's another case where it said someone fell at the feet and the person wasn't actually present. It's like in their mind they fell at the feet. So that would be an interesting thing to check in the Bhagavatam. Are there cases in the Bhagavatam where it said someone fell at the feet of someone else or touched the feet when the person was not actually present? So, but in any case, um, the attack of Shalva <clears throat> the attack of Shalva on Dwarka is toward the end of the tenth canto. It's almost it's one of the last. Uh, it's toward the end of the tenth canto, and in the Mahabharata, it is things are just really getting going. And so, if you if you juxtapose, if you compare the timelines the chronology of what goes on in the Mahabharata and what goes on in the Bhagavatam, what we see is that the Mahabharata really gets into gear where the 10th canto is ending. So they're not just parallel timelines. And, and the reason for that is obvious, <clears throat> that uh, just as Lord Chaitanya had three, had his Adi Leela, Madhya Leela, and Antya Leela, 
First, uh, Lord Chaitanya's Adi Leela is when he's not really focused on the state of the world. He's in his own little hometown and there are very intimate Vrindavan type pastimes. Then he leaves Navadvip, goes out into the world and performs, you could say, or fulfills his historical purpose, which is to establish the Sankirtan movement in a very powerful way. And then after doing that, after establishing the Yuga Dharma, um, then, Krishna, then Lord Chaitanya retires to Jagannath Puri, doesn't travel, doesn't really preach that much, and uh, exhibits you know, his own ecstatic love for Krishna, which is also the Yuga Dharma in a sense. So if you look at Krishna Leela, just as Lord Chaitanya was in Navadvi, more intimate family and intimate friends, so Krishna's in Vrindavan. So Navadweep is the Vrindavan of Chaitanya Leela. So you have that first stage of the pastimes. Then Krishna leaves Vrindavan, not only to reveal to the world the power of love and separation of the residents of Vrindavan, but Krishna leaves Vrindavan because he has to intervene in human history. He has to save the earth and save the three worlds from all these demons. And he's rewriting history. He's intervening directly in human history. As he says he will in Bhagavad Gita, that I come in every age whenever Dharma declines. So the middle, the Madhya Leela of Krishna is when he's going around personally killing demons. And one of the last demons he kills is Shalva. After that, I mean, right after he kills Shalva and Shalva's, Shalva's friends, those are almost the last demons Krishna kills. Then Krishna declares that he will not personally fight anymore and that's why in Kurukshetra, he's the chariot driver. So because the Bhagavatam is focused on Krishna Leela, and because the last part of Krishna's life, he's not in Vrindavan, but he's also not killing demons. He's just, it's, it's like Lord Chaitanya, Jagannath Puri. And uh, so therefore the 10th canto ends there because it's concerned with Krishna's direct pastimes in Vrindavan and then restoring Dharma. So therefore, but but so almost at the end of the 10th canto, if you look, if you go across to the timeline, the chronology of the Mahabharata, uh, that's when Draupadi is being insulted. And of course, then, the, then all the whole story of the Pandavas going in exile into the forest and then coming back and the battle of Kurukshetra, all that is going to happen after uh, the 10th canto ends. So that's an important point to keep in mind. So that's why Krishna was not personally there. So what did Krishna do? How did Krishna respond to this unspeakable, this uh, heinous insult within that culture to Draupadi? And it said here, um, Krita, actually, anyway, I don't know if you see the Bhagavatam in mind, there's an apostrophe before the K, which is probably shouldn't be there, but never mind that. Just grammatical detail on how they did it. So, Kritahatesha Vimukta Keshaha. So, uh, he made, so, so there's a compound. So, Krishna, Krita means he did, he made. He made just tatstriya. Tatstriya means the women of the offenders. The women of the offenders. So they did this to Draupadi. And then Krishna made the wives, the women of these demons. He made them krita, hatesha. He made them widows. Isha is their lord, their husband. Hata killed. He made them widows. And literally, he made them women whose, hus whose his husband was killed. And therefore, because they were Hatesha, they were widows, Vimukta, they, un they released, they, they uh, undid Kesha, their hair. So Krishna said, okay, you did, you, you uh, undid, you released uh, see, uh, uh, Draupadi's hair. So all of the wives of these men are going to let down their hair because I'm going to kill all their husbands. And so they're all going to be grieving widows and, and let their hair down for the funeral, which was the custom. 
So you can see Krishna, I mean, it's a, it's a powerful statement that you let down Draupadi's hair. So now I will make sure that all of your wives let down your hair at your funerals. In other words, I'm going to make sure I'm going to kill all of you or arrange for all of you to be killed. So this was a capital crime against Draupadi. This was a capital crime, a, crap, a capital offense, punishable by death. Krishna personally delivered a death sentence. And actually in doing so, in a sense, Draupadi acted as her own lawyer because she said, she said that she cursed them all to die. And essentially Krishna is declaring that I'm going to enforce that curse. It's like a lawyer in a court saying that these people did this to me, they deserve the death penalty. And the judge saying, yeah, I'm going to give them the death penalty. So it's very powerful. And it's all about her hair. I mean, the hair is mentioned uh, several times here. It said the Charu Kabaram, her beautiful, like her hair was, you've seen like, like, a, like a very aristocratic lady at a very important event where the hair is done in different ways. It's combed down. And, and, and then there's, you know, other parts in, in um, what do you call it? I don't do it very much, my own hair, as you know. Um, but another fun where, where they, it's, um, trans, you know, where they, um, you know, the, the hair is, you know, like you weave the hair, like that. So, um, so it's mentioned Charu Kabaram, her beautiful hair arrangement, Sprishtam, the hair is touched, and then, uh, the hair of the ladies, the wives are going to be let down as they are made into widows. So that's what it talks about. And then it, Krishna is not mentioned here. And it said that she fell at the feet. So again, uh, it can be taken. It's not wrong to say that she fell at Krishna's feet because grammatically it can be Krishna's feet. And undoubtedly, Jopati did take shelter of Krishna. So it's just, I mean, if you wanted to be strictly grammatical, it simply says she fell at the feet. So then, uh, and the reason, the reason I think this is important is because we are dedicating our lives to promoting what everyone calls Vedic culture. And so if in Vedic culture, it is allowable, it's legal to gamble your wife to get in her as, as just gross property. She's just property. It's, it's like, for example, Let's say I'm I I'm in it. Well, it's very unlikely I will ever be in a gambling match. But let's say someone's in a gambling match, and they you know they're down. They've gambled all their money. Say, okay, I'll gamble my cell phone. It's all I have left. I'll get you know I'll put my cell phone in there as a stake, and they lose. What that means is the person that gets the cell phone, they can do whatever they want with it. They can use it as a cell phone, they can throw it in the garbage, they can jump up and down on it, they can take it apart and, and you know, use the little parts, so they can do anything. They have absolute right to do anything they want with the phone. I mean, you, they can't take it and, you know, hit someone else over the head with it and kill them, but for their personal use, they can do anything they want with that phone. So if you gamble a woman, if, if, if there's a culture which is so barbaric, which is so barbaric that you can gamble a woman and then if you lose the gamble, then the men that win the woman can do absolutely anything to her. Sexually, uh, they can enslave her, they can, you know, they can do anything. And so to say in the God-given Vedic culture, you can do that, that's legal. Because if you look at all the descriptions, both in the Bhagavatam and the Mahabharata, I think most important, in a sense, or very important, is what doesn't happen. No one stands up, even Vidura, who's the only one who has the character to stand up and say, you, you know, this is terrible what you're doing. What, he, he, what, what Bhishma and everyone doesn't say is what Yudhisthira doesn't say, is that this is illegal. This is against the law. No one says it. So we know that the Mahabharata is a corrupted text. We know that. Madhvacharya wrote a whole book about that. 
And so um, if you actually read the unabridged Mahabharata, it, it kind of becomes obvious, although no one does that. It's, you know, they read the little condensed version. So um, how can we promote Vedic culture if it's a culture in which you can gamble a woman? I mean, in this case, you know, one of the most respectable women in the world, practically a goddess, you know, woman born out of a fire altar, not even a, really a human. I mean, she's a goddess. Then you can gamble her? And the Bhagavatam doesn't say that. The Bhagavatam does not say that you just your gamble Draupadi. Doesn't say that. What 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 the Bhagavatam says happened, or from or putting pieces together here from here and there, is that uh, Yudhishthira gambled what he could legally gamble, namely his own property, like his weapons. <clears throat> he could gamble his weapons, and he did that. And uh, just to uh, he gambled his weapons, and then and and so all the Pandava's weapons were gone. So you could say, well. Even though they were surrounded by thousands of kshatriyas, some of them from higher planets, demonic planets with all kinds of powers and weapons, and the Pandavas had no weapons, but couldn't they still just defeat all the uh, Kurus? Actually, no. There, there's a tremendous amount of hyperbole, sort of exaggerated speech in the Mahabharata, so that if you look at the warriors are always saying, like, every warrior brags, you know, no one can defeat me. I can defeat every king in the world, every prince. I could, I could defeat even Indra himself. So there's an extraordinary amount of hyperbole, like bragging, at least in the Mahabharata. Not so much in the Bhagavatam. There, there are very significant differences between the Bhagavatam and the Mahabharata. And so, but then when the battle really starts, if you read the unabridged battle scenes of the Mahabharata, no one really can do that. I mean, it's really, they're pretty evenly matched. And the Pandavas, you know, they'll attack different people and sometimes they'll fight for a while. Sometimes two or all the Pandavas will gang up and still it's hard to kill them. So it's because on the other side, they have the same superhuman powers, at least most of the people. So it's interesting, if you look at the unabridged Mahabharata battle scenes, what you find is that they're like, there really are two kinds of people on the battlefield. There are human beings, and there are these people with special powers. So that if you fire a weapon at a, at a, at a, a human warrior, they just die. You know, they just go down, they die. Just like in, in the real world. But with, with the superhuman beings like the Pandavas, like these other people, uh, Bhishma, you, they don't. If you shoot them and, and you know, like the, you fill them with arrows and they don't die. In fact, um, a very common image in the unabridged battle scenes is that this or that soldier warrior looked like a porcupine. I mean, that, that image is given all the time. They looked like a porcupine because they're filled with arrows, but they don't die. So there are these two kinds of people on the battlefield, and therefore, you know, the Pandavas, even with all their weapons and with all their soldiers and allies, they don't just show up at Kurukshetra and say, okay, you can probably get this done by lunch. You know, the, you know, the, the, this battle of Kurukshetra, this will be over by lunch, you know, at the latest by dinner, but I hope we can make our lunch engagement. It's not like that. It's not like that. And so the Pandavas all, you know, without their weapons in this gambling hall against all these soldiers, these super warriors with all their weapons, no, they're not going to fight them. And so Draupadi was offended and Krishna responded. So I think I'll stop here, but I wanted to go over that and explain um, what the Bhagavatam actually says, what it doesn't say. And... Um, Jiva Goswami, who Prabhupada said is the greatest philosopher, certainly the most prominent theologian in the Gaudiya tradition. And he says, our highest authority is the Bhagavatam. So in that sense, I'm following Prabhupada and Jiva Goswami. We know that Prabhupada was not so strict about Leela details because they're Leela details and because Krishna 
um, performs his pastimes innumerable times. He also, in different places, he also uh, appears in the mind of a pure devotee. He reciprocates with the devotees. And so if you look at the commentaries of the Vaishnava Acharyas, including Prabhupada, we see that they make a very big distinction between philosophy, what they call Siddhanta, the philosophical conclusions, or Siddhanta, the word used in the Bhagavatam is not Siddhanta, it's Tattva. They use the word Tattva. Like Krishna or Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that uh, Tadvidhi learned this knowledge from the, uh, you know, the gurus. It's actually in the plural, great souls. He says, and, and what we translate seers of the truth in the Sanskrit is Tattva Darshina. They are seers of Tattva. So what is Tattva? Vishnu Tattva, Jiva Tattva, Prakriti Tattva. Tattva means a fundamental category of real things, of real existing things, Tattvas. It's just like in the third canto, uh, Devahuti inquires from her son when he's teaching her Sankhya. She says, Kati Tattvani, how many fundamental principles are there? So the word Tattva can be used in different ways. It can be used to mean like earth, water, fire, air. In that sense, fundamental principles. Or in the highest sense, it means uh, not separating composite tattvas because there's one thing which is prakriti tattva. And so in the higher sense, it's one tattva. But then you can break it down and say there are many subcategories. So the word tattva can be used for subcategories or it can just mean the most fundamental principles like Vishnu Tattva. So Vishnu Tattva means there's there's a category of real things called Vishnu, the Vishnu category. And of course, there's one God, but there are many different, Krishna appears in many forms. So in the Bhagavatam, I wrote an essay on this, my essay, which you've all read and memorized, I know, and I want to thank you for that. So in that essay, I explained that the Bhagavatam says over and over again that a guru teaches tattva. It's right there in the first chapter of the Bhagavatam. A guru teaches tattva. Krishna says in the Gita that you learn from the spiritual master, you learn tattva. They've seen tattva. So that's what they teach you. So as far as Leela details, because Krishna's Leelas take place in many universes because uh He's, you know, it, it, it's always going on somewhere. And so in general, in the Gaudiya Vaishnav tradition, there is more liberty taken by the Acharyas when they talk about Krishna Leela. In fact, there are some great Leela narrators, pastimes. Leela means pastime. If you're not, you didn't drink the Kool-Aid yet. So um, the idea is, devotees, you know, thousands of ISKCON devotees go to, say, Vrindavan or Mayapur, say, in Vrindavan, and there are devotees there, well-known devotees that regale all the visitors. They tell all these pastimes, Krishna did this, Krishna did that. And what's interesting is that most of these things that all the devotees sit there and listen to and enjoy are not in any Shastra. They're not Nisha, and no one really is bothered by that. No one, if, if you went to Vrindavan, let's say, and some senior devotee told you, actually, uh, Krishna is, uh, you know, Krishna, when he came to Vrindavan, he uh, he actually never left. He um, he went to another planet. Well, I'm trying to think of an example. If someone changed the philosophy, if someone said, like, okay, you are your body, or Krishna actually is not the original form of God. It's really uh, Narayan or something. If someone changed the philosophy, everyone would immediately be up in arms. But when you hear all these pastime details, no one inquires. One time a senior sannyasi was showing me around, we were going around Govardhan Hill and he'd done this a lot. He'd taken all the senior, I guess, you know, leaders in ISKCON around Govardhan. He knew all the pastimes here. Krishna did this. And here the gopis came up to Krishna and, and, and they stole this and Krishna stole that. And so we were going around Govardhan Hill. At one point I stopped and I said, uh, how do you know all these things really happen? Like what's the source of all this? It's not in Shastra, obviously. And he said, um, 
No one ever asked me that. He'd never thought about it. And he was a you know, senior sannyasi, and he'd never thought about it. And when all the devotees go to Vrindavan and they hear all these you know, hundreds of pastimes of Krishna and the great Acharyas that are not written in any Shastra, you know, when's the last time when someone said, how do you know that really happened? So what I'm trying to say is that uh, there is a distinction made between philosophy and Leela details. Even Sanatana Goswami in his Bhagavatam commentary, you know, one point says, well, actually the Bhagavatam says this, but that's not what really happened. So he, he's saying, well, the Bhagavatam, you know, there's really a better understanding of, and he's talking about Leela details. I'm not doing that. I'm not Sanatana Goswami. I'm doing the opposite because I am uh, very, very junior to these great devotees. I am supporting the Bhagavatam's version. We have a description, actually in this canto, we'll come to before too long, the world still exists. And that is that um, of how Parikshit left this world very gloriously. The Mahabharata tells another uh, version, which is not what really happened, how Parikshit was afraid of dying. And so he, he built this little like palace or little cottage up on top of a huge thin pillar so that no snake could get up there, but the snake snuck in. In, in a basket of fruit, which is obvious. I mean, I mean, anyway, obviously, if you know that a snake's supposed to come and kill you and someone brings you a big fruit basket, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to look at the fruit basket, see if there's a snake there, but he doesn't, so and then he's killed. So in many different ways, the Mahabharata gives a different picture. And Jiva Goswami explains that we, followers of Lord Chaitanya, accept the Bhagavatam version which is what I'm doing, which some people think is a horrible, deviant thing to do, to actually follow Jiva Goswami and uh, privilege the Bhagavatam. But I'm not claiming to know everything, but I do know it's in Shastra, I think, at least the extent that it's an accessible language, and that's what it says. So I'm going to stop here. There are some questions. Actually, we're going to start charging money, a lot of money for these questions. That was a joke. Um, so let's see, comments and questions. Uh, I was a little controversial today, so maybe there'll be a lot of questions. Uh, thank you all for showing up. I'm looking for the question marks. If you ask questions, you know, you have to write a lot of question marks. So as I'm scrolling through, I notice it. Um, Oh, here's a question. So, no es pregunta. It's not a question. Okay. Tran, uh, trenza. Oh, thank you. Trenza in Spanish. That's the, when the, like, braided when the woman's hair is, like, part of it is silky and part of it is, you know, straight and part of it is braided and the braids kind of, I've seen that in movies. You know, very fancy hairstyle. So from Anandalila, my my daughter is my own property. If I choose to give my oh, that's from CC Madhya five twenty nine. That's in the, I think the story of um, Sakshi Gopal, the witness Gopal, where the man, a rich Brahmin, promises his daughter to a poor. Uh, to a poor Brahmin, if I choose to give my property to someone who has the power to stop me, could you please elaborate why in the CC we see these customs that we don't see in the Bhagavatam? Well, actually, that's not really the case. Let me go to that verse here. That's CC, Madhyalila 529. So if you can just, uh, as the saying goes, bear with me for a moment. I'll be right there. Going to database, there's Majalila, chapter 5, and verse 29. <laughs> She's very sharp in Nandalila. She catches these things. I tell her not to, but she does. So, here's the Bengali. Bada Kahe, the elderly Brahmin said. Kanya, the daughter, in the sense of Kanya Mora, my daughter is Nijadana. And so Prabhupada translates Nijadana as my own property. 
nija dana dite to give my own property nishedi be kon jan what person can forbid me to give my property so that's the verse the word dana doesn't just mean property uh it can mean that but that's actually a secondary meaning uh the word dana means treasure and and so that's the first point that the word property uh, dana if you look it up in sanskrit and this is of course sanskritic bengali this is learned bengali using a lot of sanskrit and so nija dana means my treasure if i want to give my treasure another thing is that the reason why this is completely different from the case of the bhagavatam or the, or the draupadi case is that there were very strict rules regulating what you could do you couldn't just it's like even in even in in, in america today they talk about the father giving away the bride the father giving away the bride now what's not spoken here is whether or not the girl wanted to marry this young brahmana whether or not the girl wanted to marry him it's not said that she didn't want to marry him i mean for all we know he could have been a handsome young brahman and the girl actually wanted to marry him in the case of draupadi she absolutely did not want to go into the gambling hall and be offended in the most horrible way so it's completely against her will there's no indication in this verse that the girl would be given against her will secondly uh another point is that in order for a father to give away the bride to give his treasure dana like uh arjuna is known as dananjaya the one who conquers treasure or wins treasure so if you think of the also the swayamvara ceremony where the kshatriyas compete but culturally uh all the people there are very strict rules about who could compete and the bride the girl the princess arranged the rules to favor the person she wanted to marry it's just like for example when bhishma so it's so the word swayamvara means one's own choice and yet there was an objective cultural situation where people competed so we don't know that the girl didn't want to marry the man we hear nothing about the girl protesting this is not a case like draupadi where a girl's being forced i mean there are cases like that in the bhagavatam for example when um in order to avoid a catastrophic curse that would have destroyed all of them there's a king who gave his daughter to uh chavanamuni who was this elderly sage and did she want to marry him no because uh he was very old and she was a beautiful young girl but what he did is and and she had to marry him otherwise there was going to be basically a, a catastrophe a disaster for her for her family and so he transformed his body into this beautiful young guy and she was very very happy so so we don't really find that so so as far as this girl being forced to marry someone she doesn't want to marry we don't hear that the the boy that the father gives her to is actually completely eligible he's he's a pure brahman and her age and the very fact that you have a rich brahman and a poor brahman means that this is already not vedic culture because by the time you get to this period in history uh you have brahmans who are big landowners and and you know just wealthy guys and they want and they're expected to marry their daughters to other wealthy people and this is this doesn't sound like the bhagavatam and it's funny because in the bhagavatam uh we do hear that kings gave great charity to brahmans who of course used it for the good of the people they weren't but the fact of a brahman actually being this wealthy landowner and having all this money and having all kinds of servants it's just a picture that we never see in the bhagavatam and also as i've already kind of mentioned directly there were very strict rules about who you could give your daughter to you couldn't just give your daughter to anyone there are very strict rules about it and this elderly brahman is following all of those rules he's giving his 
first of all, we know that this Brahmin was young, that the one who's receiving the girl, she's a Brahmin girl, he's a young guy. We know that he's learned, that, that, that he's learned, because why was he even there? Because he's helping the old man and showing him all the holy places. So it's a learned Brahmin. He's a person of excellent character, of excellent character. He's, he's humble. He's a gentleman. He's actually taking you know, time off from his life just to serve an elderly Brahmin. So in other words, here we have a young, cultured, educated Brahmin, and the father is giving his Brahmin daughter of the similar age to this learned, very gentlemanly, very cultured young Brahmin. Now, it, it, it also, I, I think we have to realize that we have all kinds of cultural expectations which they didn't have back then. Like nowadays, well, I want to date the guy and you know, I want to see if we're compatible, we'll probably live together for a while and this and that. They didn't have those cultural expectations. The girls themselves would have been horrified by that idea, horrified. It's not something they wanted. It's not something they could even imagine. So, so, so in our culture, we take certain things for granted. Like, of course, that's what normal people do. But in, the, in this culture back then, it would have been considered horrible by all parties, the girls and the guys, everyone would have considered it to be absolutely not an option. And so back then, as we've seen, even in the Hare Krishna movement, when you have a limited pool, like, like for example, I mean, it's a very common, unfortunately, it's very unfortunate that it, it's in ISKCON, in the Hare Krishna movement, there are many young girls who are excellent devotees, very qualified, you know, they have very good character. They're really just highly qualified girls. And, uh, and, and in many cases, attractive girls. But they have principles. They want to marry someone at their level. They want to marry someone who's very serious about Krishna consciousness, and they can't find someone. You know, unfortunately, and it is very unfortunate, that's extremely common. Very qualified attractive, educated, good devotee girls who can't find a proper husband. And what we see in the real world, apart from this may not sound like all the romantic movies you've ever watched, but it is the real world. In the real world, what we've seen is that if a girl in that situation finds a husband who is really qualified, who's really qualified in terms of age, in terms of character, education, you know, let's say he's not like, you know, horribly ugly or something, you know, you know, and, and there's nothing in this story that indicates that he's like this really ugly guy or something. In other words, I've seen more cases than I can tell of girls in that situation who are very grateful and happy to find a very qualified guy because the more you are in the bodily concept of life, the fussier you are about the kind of body you're marrying. And the more you're really strong in Krishna consciousness, the more you value character and, you know, spiritual qualifications. Is this person a gentleman? Is this person intelligent? Can we have intelligent conversations? Can we share the same culture? Can we really be friends? Can we really, you know, hang out together because we share so many values and everything. And in this case, uh, the boy was very, very qualified. The girl's not complaining. And it's all being done within strict rules about who can marry who, because they were very, actually, <laughs> very fanatical about that back then. And, and so the rule that this elderly Brahmin's family is going to cite that, you know, well, this guy, the only complaint they have is he's not rich enough. He's not rich enough. They don't have enough money. But it's interesting, even when the, the girl's family, the, the elderly Brahmin, his, his, his family, they're all fighting like crazy to stop the marriage. And they're using every argument they can think of, and they're threatening, we'll kill ourselves. No one says he's not qualified. 
No one says he's not qualified. No one says, you, you know, you can't marry your daughter to uh, this person because, you know, he's, he's, he's horrible because of this, because of that, the way he looks. No one says that. His only disqualification is he's not rich. And if the girl couldn't care less about that, why should we? So uh, I'm going to, I had 10 minutes. Uh, maybe, Anandalila, you can send a little note. I, I'm doing an initiation in uh, Croatia. I'm not going to Croatia, but that's, uh, and so, but that was an important thing. Uh, why do I think the version of the Kuru's trying to remove the sari became so widespread? Because it's, it's I hate to say this, but it's, um, you know, a lot more people go to see a movie where a woman, people are trying to rape a woman than just where they undid her hair. I think it's, you know, it's kind of plays to the audience. I mean, I think it's, it's obvious why that story would, you know, arise in Hindu society, which was very repressed. Uh, I'm not talking about Prabhupada here. Prabhupada was just, I mean, there are many, many cases. I won't go into it here where Prabhupada, just whatever stories he heard as growing up, he repeated them because he was mostly concerned about philosophy. As far as, uh, can you comment whether someone actually attempted to strip Draupadi of her clothing? We have no evidence in the Bhagavatam of that. Uh, so, Yandalila, oh, I already told her, send a little note to Croatia. Super, uh, super, super, super. Oh, uh, Prabhupada did focus. This is Radha Kanta. I, I can't get into all the questions. Prabhupada did focus on time and place. He did it amazingly. Um, so as far as how can one uh, Lilakar decipher all the pastimes when you go to the holy places, read the Bhagavatam. Is a Ganguly version best? It's decent. It's, um, you know, it's he's translating a text which is, has a lot of problems, but, you know, he's a reasonably competent translator. Any signs of corruption in the Gita? And, uh, no, there are no signs of corruption in the Gita for the obvious reasons that it's so short it could be easily memorized. The Mahabharata could not be memorized. It was too big. The Bhagavatam always, the Gita was sacred and therefore people were able to easily memorize it and they were highly motivated to do so. And therefore the Bhagavad Gita was preserved basically intact. He heard that Ashwatthama first awoke the five sleeping sons. No, that's not in the Mahabharata. It's one of those innumerable, uh, innumerable Hindu stories. Okay, so thank you very much. Sorry, I got to run. You know, I have to, as I say, preach and run. But um, I have to give initiation. You're all welcome. It's going to be live streamed to a devotee in Croatia. So thank you for coming. Hare Krishna.